Welcome to Making a Scene, an Esplanade podcast about how art gets made. In this episode, we explore storytelling by women about women. We'll be talking to Bali Kaur Jaswal, the Singaporean novelist who has released her fourth book, The Unlikely Adventures of the Shergill Sisters, and Pallavi MD and Bindu Malini from India. They are the creators of The Threshold, a musical conversation that they performed at Esplanade as part of the 2019 Kala Utsavam Indian Festival of Art. Today's episode is hosted by me, Pooja Nansi. I'm the festival director of the Singapore Writers' Festival, and I'm a poet and spoken word artist. In 2016, I created an autobiographical show and performed it at the Esplanade. That show was You Are Here. There's a piece in the show where I talk about watching TV as a child. So I make reference to watching things like Art Attack, Rainbow Connection, which were very like popular kids shows in the 80s when I grew up. And obviously the other thing that was always playing was Jane Fonda. I pulled my swimsuit on over my pajamas and little brown me, pot-bellied, pretend I am Jane Fonda. <laughs> the show is also about growing up Indian in Singapore I just make connections between the fact that like as a little brown girl with like curly hair I was watching this like beautiful svelte blonde woman telling me like this is the attainable body when really it's not like I'm never going to look like Jane Fonda it just then organically led to other questions about all the times that my body has been commented upon and my body has become a site for acceptance or non-acceptance or surprise you know um, and how problematic that is so it's fascinating when people do ask about gender and race because I don't think we ask many like white men how their gender or their race informs their work. And I think that's because that is just the accepted norm and everything else is the other, right? So like one of my favorite writers, um, Audre Lorde, talks about the mythical norm. And she says the mythical norm in America is the straight white man. Just like the mythical norm in Singapore is the straight upper middle class Chinese men. And because you see that as just what is the most accepted or represented human experience, you don't see those bodies as gendered or racialized. Uh, Whereas when you see a body that is not the mythical norm, you see gender and you see race. So actually, I think for me, I wasn't really aware of gender or race till, till other people made me aware of it. And it gets really boring having to talk about race all the time. Like, it's super boring. I just want to talk about, like, my love of hip-hop. Or I just want to talk about, like, the fact I watched four episodes of Singapore Social last night and nothing happened on it. But, you know, inevitably when people invite me to talk about things, they always ask you to talk about gender or race. And I think that's much more because of the lack of representation and the lack of voices that we have. And if there were more brown female voices... I think those experiences would just seep into our narratives and we wouldn't find them so sort of like 
necessary to talk about all the time. That being said, I cannot avoid being female. or I, I do identify as female and I cannot avoid being Indian and they're just parts of who I am. And because a lot of my work is autobiographical, it just comes out. like Those are just important aspects of my identity to me. And uh, often it's just me talking about who I am. But I first encountered Bali when I was doing Poetry Slam way back in the day, like I'm saying like 2002, 2003. Uh, and Bali, I think, was at that time sort of maybe experimenting with poetry. And so we met uh, there. We had one brief encounter. And the first novel of hers that I first read was Inheritance. It was the first time that I saw myself in a Singaporean narrative. Um, and obviously, I'm not Punjabi, I'm Gujarati, but I hadn't actually seen an immigrant story. And I hadn't seen a story about an Indian family that was so fleshed out and so nuanced and just talked about issues like shame and mental health and community in the way that that novel did. And so for me, that was a very, it was a very moving moment where I saw myself in the landscape uh, of a country that I come from and a country in which I live and do my work as a writer. So watching Threshold was great because my own background is a, is a lot in poetry and music and text and music and uh, uh, I used to perform with my best friend who's a blues singer and we did a lot of poetry and music work. It's always very exciting to see women who are on a similar wavelength collaborate. It's always very nice to see that kind of very strong female energy on stage. 22 pairs of chromosomes are shared by all sexes. The 23rd combination determines a lot for us. About who we are. About our identities. About the roles we play. About how we are perceived. And about what course our life is going to take. This is a traditional wailing song from Tamil Nadu. But what really resonated with me was the number of narratives I didn't know about. And I'm someone who reads a lot of like female voices. Uh, I've been working as a poet for a long time. And yet I think The Threshold offered me stories that surprised me and stories that moved me. And I thought what was also very beautiful was the way in which they connected narratives like from 12th century Greece to like 12th century like uh, Tamil Nadu. And you saw these two women who had no way of connecting with each other. And like years and, and centuries later, um, two other women are connecting their stories for them. And so that, that whole thing was very moving. And aside from the fact that uh, both like Bindu Malini and Olivia, like just amazing performers in their own right. So yeah, it was a really powerful show. I, I really enjoyed it. 
So I guess I'd like to start by getting everyone to introduce themselves and maybe we can all take turns to think about how we became artists and also why do you think uh, novels or music became your chosen medium? I'm uh, Pallavi, MD Pallavi from Bangalore. I think uh, I'm, I'm born into a family of artists. My mother runs a theatre school, my father was an actor, my grandfather was a theatre activist, journalist. Everybody in my house, then my uncle runs a fine arts school, so there's like art happening all around me. I guess it would have been surprising if I was turned out to be a computer engineer or, uh, you know, something else. It's not surprising at all that I've chosen to do music and theatre. I'm Bali Kaur I'm a novelist. Unlike Balavi's background, it was a complete surprise to everyone that I be, became a writer. Um, there, there were always books in my household, but I, I, I think the, um, the, the pressures to, to do something more conventionally professional were always there. I guess it's something that I sort of rebelled against. I always just love stories. Uh, I love to read. A, a lot of writers will say that you know, their love for reading um, made them want to, to write stories, like write the sorts of books and, and stories that they wanted to read. In my case, it was definitely that. And it was also the fact that there were so few stories that had people like me in them. You know, The sorts of books that I read were usually from America or England and, and publishing at the time wasn't very diverse, especially sort of children books. Um, I grew up in lots of different countries as well, so my narrative was always sort of invisible and, and something that I had to explain to people a lot. So I think that really motivated me to write and tell people my story and where I was from and what my identity was. I'm Bindu and uh, currently I live in Bangalore. I'm also a musician, composer. Similar to Pallavi, I also come from a family of musicians, artists. My sister is a writer and in another way, it's a madhouse also. So I think <laughs> a combination of uh, art and madness has inspired me to be what I am today. Cool. Uh, I guess I sit somewhere in between you guys. Uh, my dad's an engineer, but also a playwright. So my sister became an engineer and I became a writer. And then he's fine now. He has one of each. Okay, so I guess since we're talking about um, the idea of women and storytelling, the first question I have is, what does gender mean to you as an artist? Do you think of yourself as a female storyteller? And is that sort of framing important to you? Or do you find it sometimes restrictive or reductive? I consciously identify as a female storyteller sometimes uh, as a female artist yes but I think like in my everyday life dealings I would rather not have the continuous you know female 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 uh, tag attached to me and um, thinking of it like that but otherwise as a female artist I think um, for example this, the, the threshold is a telling of stories of women and looking into gender through the lens of, you know, women's uh, stories, poems, text, voices. It is kind of, uh, I think, um, necessary to be able to look through all this material with the consciousness that, yes, I'm a female artist. I guess like what's interesting is when you say like every day you'd rather not have that tagline of like female artist, female artist. And it does like I'm sure we've all encountered it where sometimes it starts feeling like a burden or you get on those panels about women's writing uh, <laughs> and then you get asked questions like, you know, how do you juggle writing and looking after a family, which, you know, men never get asked about. So in what ways is that sometimes felt like a burden, but also in what ways is that a gift? There's a distancing then all the time 
there's always like uh, you're drawing a line and you're seen as the other and the whole idea of such inquiry even when it comes to gender is to see how to negotiate with all this and keep blurring these lines and uh, for me because of the current production the threshold this question this this inquiries in the forefront of reflecting back on the life experience so far and um probably giving g- getting an opportunity to sit back and think about this before taking the next step i think that it can sort of pigeonhole you and there's an expectation of your writing then that you should only write about women or about women's issues um because you know the general public the media um and publishing as well often wants to kind of pigeonhole uh the kind of writing you can do or your identity as a certain kind of writer and the the thing i like to think of to sort of expand that that definition of women's writing is to think of how women's writing actually gets to a lot of the truths of society that writing from the perspective of men doesn't always get to because that really is only one perspective and it is a very privileged perspective but if you want to know you know the truth about a society you should be asking the women they're they're doing a lot of that background work they're 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 doing a lot of the invisible work in in shaping a society and shaping a culture that that we just don't give them enough credit for and that we just don't hear about enough in narratives. And I mean I think it's also like this very complex thing and I like the conversation is coming forefront and center more and more these days um which it comes up quite strongly in the threshold where you talk about like it's not a binary between men and women, right? And so often we like there's been all these conversations about non-binary genders and uh, people are like oh this is a millennial conversation like conservative societies are not ready for it but I think what the threshold really does is is remind us that these aren't western conversations and that like actually uh, south asian societies and like other societies have been having these conversations about gender and sexuality from as far back as like the 4th century but i guess working as like south asian women do you ever feel a pushback about the things that you choose to talk about or have you ever encountered kind of pushback when you decide to talk about gender not so far at least in the way that we are exploring gender and the way we want to kind of uh, share what we have gathered um we're trying to keep it inclusive and i guess that's reaching out to people and they are listening to us in that same spirit well there are certainly um men in the community that i'm from the punjabi sikh community in singapore who feel that um the work that i do is not presenting um our community in the best light of course they haven't actually told me this they've just kind of gossiped about this amongst themselves so it's kind of third hand they're sort of doing the the, the same thing that um a lot of the punjabi widows do in my <laughs> in my books they sit around gossip about people they don't like <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah and not actually directly confronting me about it or 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 explaining it to me or having any sort of dialogue so this is all very third hand knowledge but you you hear it from enough people you kind of think well maybe it's true um and and you know th- i think there is this idea that if you're going to be the person represent if if there's not going to be enough if, if there isn't enough representation of your narrative and you are the one person who's writing about that community then you have a responsibility to present that community in the best light and to kind of sweep issues under the rug because you know we don't want outsiders thinking that we're barbaric or we're violent um but that's really not my job my job is to kind of think about uh and and to be critical of the community because that's the only way that a community is going to to do better at being inclusive and i just don't think it does right by some of its women and those, so that's one of those things that i i i explore quite a bit and it's not 
I, I don't really feel like it's my responsibility to constantly be waving a flag and saying, no, we are the best at everything and we're, we're doing just fine. I think that would be quite a disservice to um, the people who don't feel that the community is, is always there for them uh, in the same way that it's there for, for a lot of the men who, who take up a lot of space. I guess then a follow-up question I have is also like sometimes like working as a as a, a minority woman writer, right? Um, and I think this is a bit specific to Singapore because like the Indian community is a minority. Like there's always this tension of because there's underrepresentation and largely also with women's stories they're underrepresented. Do you feel this constant tension of like you're also with the platforms that you have and the space that you have? and the limited amount of representation that you can give, you obviously want to push back against some of the negative uh, stereotypes that exist about Indian culture being completely conservative, which it's not. Like, it's actually our scripts are full of, like, sexuality and full of, of sensuality. So, like, there's you always want to push back against that. But at the same time, as you say, it's not your job to wave a flag. And so how do you balance that tension? It's quite difficult and it really depends on sort of who the audience is that I'm talking to. Like when I think about sort of events that I do or readings, I do find myself explaining a little bit more or defending a little bit more the, the culture and the community and saying, you know, lots of men also have approached me to say that um, the books really made them think differently about feminism. And I've had to say that more to outsiders of the community who kind of um, expect that I have done this sort of thing where I've liberated all these women and that before before, before this book, there was no, there was nothing else that was lifting them out of their their traditional lives, and that's just not true. So I do I do feel like I have to be a bit more defensive, but also uh, that yeah, that doesn't mean that I'm going to always say that everything is just fine and that I'm not going to um, be critical and 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 tell our community to, to look inward and, and to look at where we could do better because that that's the whole point of a community is to serve everyone and to be there for everyone and I just don't think that a lot of communities do that well enough if we think if we really think about everyone uh, we're, we're not we're not helping every single person yeah. surprisingly what happens in threshold and we've I mean we're talking about South Asian yeah. um, the, the history of our you know culture and uh, it's very different from probably what you see in the West or, you know, the, the lives that they lead or they, that the history that they've had. But surprisingly in Threshold, the way we've juxtaposed different stories, it seems like societies pretty much have functioned the same way all over the world in terms of gender, you know. And because we do juxtapose a lot of stories like across uh, geography and across chronology also. So there could be a 4th century Greece story of Agnodice or Hypatia and then it could come uh, and we could be discovering a story from the 12th century of about you know some um, woman in, in South India and then we go to um, Morocco during the French occupation and a story of a woman there or Luisa Capatillo from the 19th uh, century and all these stories do have a similar kind of, uh, uh, the stories are similar, uh, although they, they are from different cultures, yeah. the struggles are similar, the, the way that gender has been kind of categorized yeah. and labeled is also very similar across the world. So, although we are very, very different societies, there are, there is, there are many similarities. I guess that answers the question of, do you think, uh, in terms of the threshold, whether female stories and or storytelling strategies 
um, change across culture, which is, although there are cultural specificities within the work, like, I think what the threshold does, and correct me if I'm wrong, is also pick out those similarities that are happening across geography and time. But I guess with Bali, like for your work, because you have uh, novels that are set in Singapore, like Sugar Bread and Inheritance, and then you have something that's set in the UK. And then obviously like different sort of settings with um, the Shergill sisters. Did you feel that your storytelling changed as like settings changed? Or did you feel like you had to play by different gender roles in different settings? By different gender roles with the different settings. That's interesting. Um, you know, when I when I was writing Inheritance, and even you know, even now when I describe it, I always talk about it as a it's a, it's a story of a young woman who um, who has who has men, who has a mental illness. Um, but the novel is actually written from the perspective of her brothers, and she actually has she has she has a little bit of say in it. And it wasn't really there wasn't a conscious choice there. It just it just seemed natural to me that this woman, if she was going to be seen as a problem, then it was she was seen as a problem by society and by her very patriarchal community and by her family. And so the issue was not so much her individuality and her identity, or or the reader didn't really follow that as much as the reader followed the problem solving and the protecting our reputation and protecting our honor. Um, so that was the, the first novel I wrote and that was the, the, the first time I really kind of looked at things very largely from, from a male, male perspective, um, but, you know, men's perspectives of women. Um, and then with my subsequent novels, I kind of turned it on to the, the women's perspective and I really wanted, I guess, them to be in control of their narratives. I think after working on Inheritance, I just, I, f I really felt like that I just wanted the women to be in charge. So for Sugar Bread, I had kind of a three, three generations of women kind of telling their stories. I suppose whether that changes with the setting, I'm not sure if it changes with the setting so much as it changes with the story. So how much the women have control of their stories, how many women's perspectives I show in the stories and how much I go along that spectrum between tradition and modernity really depends on the nature of the story. So like with erotic stories for Punjabi widows, it was a very, you know, that tension between tradition and modernity was a, was a big thing in the novel. Um, so I really had sort of different cast of, of women and, and their different backstories in there. With Shergill sisters, it was the three sisters pretty much each got the same amount of airtime and, and the the, I guess the major theme there was more just society's treatment of women wherever they were. So, you know, it was kind of across, across all these boundaries. Yeah, so I think it's interesting that you brought up the idea of like, uh, well, mental health or like uh, madness or shame, I don't think are things that we talk about enough, especially in women's experiences. Like, like we all know that the word hysteria comes from the Greek word for the womb. Yeah. Uh, and so it's almost like as though any kind of overflow of emotion is connected to femininity. But also, like, do you think then, as artists, that storytelling is a way to reframe uh, notions of, like, feeling or shame or emotion, all which are seen as, like, overwrought feminine negative traits, but can be such powerful things? Like, for example, I remember you told a story last night about... Um, uh, the Moroccan singer who gets buried Kandal alive and, yeah, and she sings till the last brick is put on her tomb or like her created grave, right? And so do you think as storytellers, like there's some level of reclamation that's happening when as women we get to tell stories about other women? Yeah, I think so. I mean, storytelling also, it's wonderful, you know, with this form of storytelling, you are able to not say what you, you know, would like the person to think, you're able to open up 
the space in a way that the listener is pointed towards many directions and not just the you know one single view that he or she holds so in that way i think storytelling is a great tool to to review and to re uh, discover what we think are okay this this is the actual story this is what actually happened this is what we actually think about something so many of these things we try try to address in threshold stories that we already know but actually we do not know them stories that we've heard but we haven't heard this side of that story um perspectives that we thought we knew but we actually do not have this perspective you know we're trying to see in threshold if we could bring in stories and present them in a way that questions our initial you know identification with the story itself yeah. nowadays i think uh, all these unheard stories or stories that probably happened in another remote corner it's available accessible to all of us nowadays so that's a great thing however i think the whole thing about fact and uh, truth and how you put it across to the the power of storytelling it's way too powerful and uh, it has to be handled quite uh, carefully yeah. um which i guess then leads to the question of um ethics and responsibility like as storytellers telling other women's stories like what is the responsibility that we hold yeah <laughs> the responsibilities i mean it's really like she said it's while doing storytelling you have to be very very careful with representation and with presentation of uh, truth fact storytelling what is the line that you're drawing how are you presenting the story whose story are you presenting where do you stand when you're telling that story i think in a way that we have chosen to tell stories of women although we're talking about gender i think it's one step easier to do that as women we are able to tell and represent women and tell the stories of women and through that we are able to open up an inquiry into you know what does gender actually mean what does you know masculinity femininity mean what does what does what is the difference between sex gender identity all these things although it's not just women we are talking about but by being women and by having lived you know a, a life of women uh, we representing uh, i think e- it's easier to be represent from, from lived experience yes and we are constantly questioning how we kind of as two individuals we we need to be authentic to what we are saying or we need to feel correct in some way yeah. and also constantly keeping in mind what are we trying to leave the audience with yeah. it's very easy to make statements but yeah. is that what we want at the end of the day or something else so um do you have you felt any kind of particular uh struggle with like um just responsibilities in telling the stories of these women like as fictional as they are like some of them i mean all of it must be rooted in things that you've seen and felt yeah i think with my first two novels um i definitely felt th- they were much more autobiographical they were much closer to my lived experience um especially sugarbread like sugarbread was actually a joy to write which is not something i say much about writing these days um a joy in terms of going back to my own childhood you know feeling that nostalgia and also wanting to set certain things right you know having the main character stand up for herself in ways that and stand up for others in ways that i i didn't necessarily do when i was a kid and in heritance as well was a way to kind of shape a certain history with a happier ending um, th- than what actually happened 
with my other novels, so I, I guess as you you continue in your career as a storyteller, you you're bolder about taking risks and you're bolder about stepping away from your experience and thinking, oh, now I can, I I feel like I can use more of my imagination now, or I feel like I can write what I know in terms of emotion, but I can mine other experiences for for stories. So with erotic stories for Punjabi widows, I remember being at first fe- feeling like a real fraud <laughs> at first because I said I didn't actually grow up in South Hall. I'm not British. I don't, you know, I'm Punjabi. But my experience in Singapore is quite different from the widows who who migrated there in the 1950s and 60s, and or or people who grew up in London and have these these very British lives that they have to reconcile with their their Punjabi lives at home. So that took a little bit of me kind of assuming what the experience was like at first just to write the story and to get the plot down and then actually thinking about the characters more deeply and thinking about the nuances of their experiences and then actually doing that research so I actually went to England same thing with Shergill Sisters I went to India and took the trip that they took because there's no way that you can really know what that's like unless you put yourself into the shoes of that character really because a lot of white people have written road trip <laughs> movies about India without going there <laughs> yeah yeah and I, yeah, I'm sure they have stacks of Lonely Planet guys and they feel like that's enough. Uh, that's a good starting point, uh, but, but it's certainly not enough. You certainly have to, yeah, you really do have to have some aspect of the experience. I mean, I didn't experience all the things that they went through. You can rely on your imagination, but as far as authenticity of a cultural experience, it's just, um, you're very misinformed and very misled if you think that you can just imagine cultural nuance or imagine, you know, the, the complexities of, of, um, of, of social and cultural structures. So what's yeah. something that you have either watched or read or heard recently that you want people to know more about or you want to share with people so I guess we're curious about what you guys are consuming as artists that are, is informing your art I actually so I'm reading a book at the moment and I'm, I'm in the middle of it so I don't know I, but I, I feel confident enough you're not it. sure <laughs> it's got a pen no, no I think it's good um, it's called A Door in the Earth and it's by an author named Amy Waldman it's about this young woman who's Afghan American and at the, after a couple of years after the, the, the war in Afghanistan has begun she goes back to Afghanistan to help in a very idealistic way to help this foundation that has built a clinic for women it's an American foundation and she's read a book of, you know, by, by the guy who founded this foundation and she goes back to sort of help because she's a she's a medical anthropology student and she's you know she's she's really she's an activist and what she discovers there is not at all like what's in the book and the stories about that village and the difficulties of the war and all of that. It's just not at all how it's how it's been packaged for Americans. And she thinks she knows that. She thinks she's aware. But when she gets there, she really discovers that there's just so much that she didn't hear about, she didn't know about from where she was. It's been fascinating for me, like looking at that kind of idealism and the line between sort of fact and truth and what's acceptable to kind of package as a story and sell to everybody else. And it, it has really, really been fascinating. And I've, I've learned a great deal about something that, you know, that we, we all went through in terms of we, it was in our media. It was all around us for, for years. It still is. And it's great that fiction can, can, can do that, can make me feel like I'm learning so much about a, a world that I really didn't, didn't know much about. So I recently, I think Chernobyl really was a oh, um, yeah. that really uh, as a production, as the story it's saying and of the truth and what had happened, it it was, um, was deeply impacted by that, um, and 
on the other side of the spectrum i'm also watching fleabag manto is something that somebody gifted me the short story so i'm reading that um, it's easy for when you're traveling yeah. and um, uh, another book that i'm started reading a larger novel is called acid by sangeeta mm. shrinivasan in terms of reading it's it's weird that i have a one year old daughter now yeah. and and i'm so <laughs> every morning i I'm, i'm reading the ulysses to <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> it's a sight it's a sight to watch it's is it are you trying to uh, put her to sleep no <laughs> she's she she's really into it oh it's really cool is it, it must like is it the sounds I don't know what I think it's the act of reading. Oh, it, she doesn't understand lovely. anything, but right. it's really the act of reading. She's sitting in her chair and she knows that moment when I wear my glasses and I hold the book and it's she she time. recognizes this book yeah. and it means a lot to her that it's such a huge book and she, <laughs> my mother thinks I'm worth. <laughs> That's great. She's going to grow up to be amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so but cute. I'm also looking for stories for her, you know. Yeah. It's difficult to find them because you have all these usual stories and fairy tales and you know that i really don't want just that to be yeah. her um, yeah. platter and i'm looking for stories uh, uh, unusual stories not even un- i would not like them to be unusual but stories that i can tell my daughter yeah. um and yeah i'm trying to find those and not teach her problematic things like yes. a prince is going to come and solve your situation absolutely yeah, yeah true i f- i think that um s- mighty girls oh, or something yeah. Yeah. what's it good night stories for for nice rebel girls for oh girls. yeah but there's a mighty yeah. girl yeah. one as well i have a 2 year old son and i i read him lots of feminist <laughs> stories as well so so he knows <laughs> so yeah that that's yeah that, that but that is a problem sometimes yes, looking yes, looking for for those things although there's a lot now yeah yeah so i just read a a really great uh, singaporean ya novel by um a writer named anita tanabalan called the lights that guide us and uh, i was very surprisingly moved by it because it's a story about just a Singaporean Indian family that's torn apart by um I don't want to reveal it because it will be a it will be a spoiler but something happens and uh, the family's torn apart and how it comes back together and and I just thought it was such a revolutionary book to add to our literary landscape because it talks about issues that young queer people face and it's not just I think you there's lots of narratives about queer people and there's lots of narratives about brown people but there's very few narratives in Singapore about queer brown people and so I thought and for young people and I just thought it was such a uplifting book so um I just wanted to shout that out. Okay, um I guess last question uh, just what are you working on next and where can people find out more about your work online? Okay, so I'm also I've been uh, composing music for films. I have done a Tamil film. I don't know maybe it's popular here. It, went on to become a blockbuster in chennai in Then tamil nadu probably is popular yeah, yeah. Adhi is the <laughs> yes. name so uh, a friend of mine vedant and i we are the music directors of that and then i did another kannada film nati charami so if you type bindu malini with an h b i n d h u malini <laughs> h u malini <laughs> <a very> tamil <laughs> yeah. spelling you will stumble upon um, not just the film works other uh, uh, songs of mystic poets that i usually perform Yeah, there are a couple of other films that I'm working on and if you're following me already then when they get updated you will stumble That's up great. on them. Are you on Instagram? Do you have a handle? I do. Instagram is again 
Bindu Malini with an H and a long name Narayana Swami following it. You can't miss it. Amazing. <laughs> I've always wanted like my name's fairly short, but you know, like Starbucks still manages to screw it up. <laughs> so sometimes always. I really wish I had a really long Indian name, and I would insist on giving it in full. Like, yeah, like Bindu Malini Narayana Swami. Please write that on my cup. Thank you. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. yeah. Um, what about you guys? Um, I'm working on a novel next. I I think the Punjabi community will be very relieved that I'm giving them a break <laughs> for this one. There's, there, there is a Punjabi character in it, but only one. Uh, it's about three Filipina foreign domestic workers in Singapore who bend together and help to exonerate another Filipina worker who's been accused of murdering her employer. Mm. So that's that's um, that, that's requiring a, a quite a bit of research um, and, and a bit of travel and a bit of just... Um, delving into a community that I that I uh, know about only peripherally uh, and, and and need need to actually uh, learn learn a lot about and it's it's been it's been quite quite a fun thing to write about it's a dark comedy actually I'm going to be directing a play oh, awesome. um, this is a, a play written by Swati Simha and it's called an echoing chamber and it's about the collective forgetfulness of a society mm. um, how some things are conveniently forgotten you know that the partition has played you know hugely in, in the collective consciousness of the indian society but there's also been something that has happened in uh, in, in central india that is um, the hyderabad massacre and that was not spoken about and there was a report on it and even the report was kind of hidden and it was not made public and all that so this is a play that's kind of uh, that has that as a backdrop and uh, the characters do come from that world where they've gone through this whole thing so i'll be directing that play next awesome. year i actually i also sing poetry and Hopefully there'll there's an album sometime next year that's going to be out. Very <laughs> I'm cool. working on some compositions, and my I'm there on Instagram and Facebook as Pallavi MD. I'm currently working on a collection of poems about Indian grocery stores mm-hmm. uh, and how they are really like sites of memory for especially Indian diasporic communities. So we have a massive one here called Mustafa Center. Yes, which yes. I'm sure you've all been to. <laughs> yes. It's much more than a grocery store yeah. now. They sell everything from like it's Walmart. It's uh-huh. Indian uh-huh. for Indian people, um, <laughs> and tourists. Yes, and tourists. Uh, so they sell everything from suitcases. At one point, they had a car showroom in there, so you can just go there, buy some Elaichi, but also a Lexus, and then just drive out. And like, it just really fascinates me. So um, yeah, it's just a collection of poems around the idea of um, being immigrant, but also trying to find place when you don't belong to one place or another, and how these strange different things like songs or grocery stores become a place of belonging for you. Well, yeah. I always think that when I travel abroad that, you know, all these Indian, like malls that are yeah. that um, predominantly Indian, you know, consumers, uh, they should have sections uh, uh, with, you know, like Kerala, <laughs> Punjabi. So communities know where to go. It's not Indian. It's not yeah. Indian. Yeah. Because you, you should. Yeah, because like, you speak Indian. It's like. Uh, because oh, Indian. Do you get that overseas? Yeah. I thought that was yeah. just a Singaporean thing where we kept being asked if we speak Indian. Indian. Oh, no, no, no. Because yeah. in South India, if you say sambar powder, yeah. It doesn't mean anything because yeah. the curry has to be specific. Yeah. You know, it has to either mean rasam or it has to mean something else. You know, so every so yeah. in a, in a, you know that's I think that's an interesting. Yeah, um, I mean, business. like uh, yeah, like can we just have a moment to talk about like the papad aisle, right? <laughs> wow. <Just> <laughs> <laughs> okay. Papadam. Yeah. 
appalam appalam vadam vadam sandige exactly so we need some specificity yes, specificity in, our, in the kapramayam <laughs> Making a scene is produced by Esplanade Theatres on the Bay, Singapore's National Performing Arts Centre. Our theme music is from More Than We Know from the album Sea Monster by the Steve McQueens, a band supported by the Esplanade under the Mosaic Associate Artists Initiative. Look for more episodes and transcripts of Making a Scene at esplanade.com, offstage, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more inspiring conversations with art makers. Oh